being here and uh, thank you for the time of worship uh, through music and now we are transitioning to worship uh, through the word. If you read our newsletter this past week, you know that we have the privilege of this morning of hearing uh, from Dr. O.S. Hawkins. Uh, Dr. Hawkins is here in partnership with Hope for the Heart of Georgia. Uh, you've heard about this event that will be in Macon in just a few weeks uh, that will be happening at the Coliseum. Uh, Dr. Michael Youssef will be preaching for two nights, a uh, two-night event there, and we hope that you will participate and bring friends uh, to that event. As part of that event, Dr. Hawkins has agreed to come in and to, uh, and to offer a conference for pastors that we will be hosting tomorrow um, here at the church and also has graciously agreed to come in this morning and to preach for us as well. Dr. Hawkins is the Senior Advisor and Ambassador for Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, prior to that, uh, he served as a CEO for Guidestone, which is a Christian mutual fund company that serves thousands of churches and pastors and universities throughout our nation. Prior to that, he was the pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas, and then prior to that, First Baptist Church of Fort Lauderdale. Uh, we are very excited this morning to have him preach. Uh, just to let you know, I was in the first service, and you're in for a treat. Uh, so you guys get ready. The passage today, bless you, uh, comes... From Ephesians chapter 1, if you've got a copy of God's Word with you, it's Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, this will also be on the screen behind me. Ephesians 1, and we will start in verse 3 and go through verse 8. So here's the Word of the Lord. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. Lord, how it changes us, how it encourages us, how it convicts us. And we pray right now as Dr. Hawkins comes, Lord, that you would speak through him as your messenger and speak to us, open our hearts and minds to what you would have us to learn today, to know deep within us and any changes that you would have us to make. And Father, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor, and thank you for the privilege of being here <clears throat> in Macon this morning. Uh, I, I know you're going to have a God-blessed time in three weeks at this celebration uh, here in Macon. Michael Yusuf's one of the, if you don't know, is one of the most effective communicators of the gospel. It's going to be a great opportunity. You know, God's moving across America in many ways right now, and this could be a defining month for the city of Macon, and so we're praying uh, to that end. You know, the gospel that we preach and that we share all over the world is what we call cross-cultural. It crosses all kinds of cultures to reach the hearts of men and women who live in all kinds of cultures. Your pastor's been a missionary on the foreign field. He knows that, that, that the good news of the gospel, the power of God is still the, uh, the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. And it crosses cultures, but we also need to be reminded that the gospel is not just cross-cultural, it's counter-cultural. 
And in our American culture today, it's never been more counterculture than it is today with a culture that's <clears throat> going awry. You know, I'm old enough, I'm probably the oldest one in this room, so I'm old enough to have seen the culture here in America shift from decade to decade to decade to decade to decade in my own life. I was a little boy back in the 1950s. It's a great time to be a little boy. Uh, I, my, our soldiers had just come back a, a few short years earlier from the Pacific where they fought in World War II. My dad was at Guam and Okinawa and those other islands. And from the European theater where they were fighting the Germans, we'd won that great big world war. <clears throat> and they came back and they all married their high school sweethearts and began, and began what is called that great baby boom. And I'm on the front end of that baby boomer generation. So <clears throat> I was a little boy in the 1950s. It was quite a time to be a little boy. You know, we rode our bicycles with our baseball caps. We didn't have those little helmets on when we rode our bicycles. We left them out in the front yard every day and every night. We got up the next morning, they were still there. We never locked our doors at night. I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas. You're not gonna believe this, but on the public address system in my public school where I was a boy in elementary school, we started every day in that public school with Bible reading and prayer on the intercom. And every fall, there would be a group called the Gideons that would come and give every one of us a, a New Testament right there in the classroom, in the, in, in the hall. It was an incredible time to, to be a, a kid back there in the 50s. Uh, you know, in Little League, things were different then. In Little League, you had to try out for the team. And not everybody made the team. But it taught us how to deal with, with setbacks and difficulties. Oh, this is going to shock you. Only the team that won the championship got a trophy. <laughs> Nobody else got a trophy <clears throat> back then. It was, a, it was an unbelievable, you know, we didn't have bottles of water. We'd be out playing ball. We didn't have bottled water or Powerade or Gatorade. We drank water out of the garden hose and nobody got sick. It, it was just an unbelievable time to be alive there in the, in the, in the 50s. And the idea that my mom or dad would side with me over the principal or the teacher if I got in trouble at school was unheard of. You know, the music, the culture is always reflected in the music. We were such a grateful and thankful people in the 50s. Church attendance was higher than it had ever been because people were so grateful and thankful to be in the aftermath of that war. And, and they had these new families that were growing up. And uh, it was an incredible time to, to be alive. Church attendance was high. And the culture is always reflected in the music. And the biggest hit song in the 50s, most of you have never heard of it, <clears throat> It's by a lady named Doris Day, and she sang, Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be, the future is not ours to see. We were a carefree, a happy, a grateful, and a thankful culture in the 50s. Then came the 60s. I was a teenager in the 60s. I always felt sorry for anybody that didn't get to be a teenager in the golden oldie days of the 60s, uh, when we were, those were days of of rolling pleated seat covers in our cars and glass pack mufflers and madras windbreakers and bass weegians and all those things that were part of the 60s. And uh, it was an incredible time, but the 60s were ushered in with some traumatic events that did something to the psyche of the culture. 
the assassination of President Kennedy in 63 in Dallas, followed shortly after that by the assassination of Martin Luther King in Memphis, followed right after that by the assassination of Robert Kennedy in L.A. And, and what happened to the culture was it began to shift from what it was in the 50s to becoming more introspective. And, and, and people began to be introspective in the 60s. And the biggest hit song of the 60s was by a trio by the name of Peter, Paul, and Mary. And they sang this big hit that, that, that they sang, the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. All those moral absolutes we thought we had, all those answers to life that we thought we had, they seemed like they were just blowing in the wind. And we became more introspective, and it gave way to Haight-Ashbury and all those other manifestations of the 1960s. Then came the 70s. Talk about a decade ushered in with some traumatic events. Roe v. Wade and Watergate and Vietnam, and it was just one cross after an uppercut, one after another, and the culture changed from being introspective to becoming very skeptical in the 70s. Billy Joel, the piano man, had the biggest hit of the 70s when he sang, only the good die young. Skepticism infiltrated our thinking processes in the 70s. Then came the 80s. <clears throat> Ronald Reagan was elected president. The military was reinforced. The economy began to grow. He talked about that shining city on a hill and hell, uh, hope was restored in, 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 the, in the culture. It was almost like the days of Josiah in the Old Testament, a, a little reprieve, a little mercy drops of revival. Then came the 90s and the, the evil empire, Russia, fell and the Berlin Wall fell. Then came the first decade of the, of the 21st century and, and of course it was ushered in with a traumatic event that changed all of our lives. I got to fly out of this sorry airport in Atlanta tomorrow afternoon and I'm going to go down there and stand in line for about an hour just because of what 9-11 did to change the culture in, in, this, in our culture. And then came the next decade. Now, now we live in this, this third decade of the, of the 21st century. And what do we see in the culture around us? What used to slither down the back alleys of our nation in towns and villages. You know what it does? Now it parades proudly down Main Street in a culture that's gone awry. And we look around. I preach in a different church every Sunday all over this country. And you know what I've noticed? We look around and, and we, we basically have lost a couple of generations to the church who've never sung a hymn, know nothing of the gospel of Christ, never have seen the Bible. And, and, and they're, they're, they're by the millions in our culture, lost to the church. And it's our, it's, our, it's our gospel, it's our call, it's our commission. That's why you're having this celebration here in, in Macon in threes. It's, it's the call of God upon us as believers to reach them, to share the good news of the gospel of Christ. But we'll never do it unless we know what they're thinking and what makes them tick. And th there are five characteristics of this lost culture in America these last couple of generations Five kind of common characteristics that are woven through the life of most every one of them. And you know what the first thing about, you know what the first quest of their life is? The thing that, that they're looking for more than anything else is they're searching for a meaningful relationship in life. Many of them have never known one. 
I'm very close to, to college football in many different ways and know a lot of coaches. And a lot of coaches in high school and college have become real father figures to a lot of kids because they've never had a male role model in their lives. And a lot of young girls haven't either. And they've never had a meaningful relationship in life, particularly with a male figure. And so what are they doing? They're out there today. They're driving by out there right now. And they may not be articulating it, but you know the number one quest of their life, sociologists tell us, is that they're searching for a meaningful relationship in life. They are the product of massive divorce. And they're homesick for a home they've never known. And they're searching for some meaningful relationship in life. That's why young guys and young girls fall into promiscuity. They're on a search. They're looking. They're searching. Just wanting a meaningful relationship in life. That's the number one quest in their life. Well, you know what the second thing about it is? They want immediate gratification. Give it to me, they say, but, but I want it right now. They've grown up in that culture. I didn't. When I was a kid and we wanted popcorn, you, some of you are not going to believe this, what we had to do to get popcorn. You had to take a skillet, and put oil in it, and put these hard kernels of corn in it, put a screen over it, and put it on the stove and shake it till your arm almost fell off before it started popping, and then you'd get popcorn after about 15 minutes. Now what do you do? You get a sack, pop it in the microwave, and 15 seconds later, you got popcorn. They've grown up in a world where everything they've had was immediate right then. When I was a kid and I studied to do a school paper or something, I had a set of Encyclopedia Britannicas. When I was a little kid, I'd go over there. If you've never seen them, they're about this big and they're thick. You'd almost get a hernia getting one, carrying it back over to your desk. And then you'd have to thumb through there to try to find it. Now what do we do? We just Google something. And in a second, we've got all the information we could ever use at our disposal. These generations have grown up in a world where they've had immediate gratification. That's why, that's why credit card debt is paralyzing these generations and some of you. It's because you, you want immediate gratification. You see something, you just put the card down there. You don't even think about the fact you're going to someday have to pay for it. That's why some people need plastic surgery to get rid of those cards. But, but, but this is the second characteristic of these lost generations. They want immediate gratification. Give it to me, give it to me right now. Here's the third characteristic. They want something for nothing. They've been brought up in a culture that's given them an entitlement mentality. And this is true on both ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. Down on the poor uh, end of the, sec of the spectrum, there are government programs that have, that have created a sense of entitlement to everybody that, that they do something, that all their college loans ought to be paid off. There's this entitlement mentality. Get, I want something for nothing. But that's not just true here. It's true on the, on the wealthier end. There are, there are a lot of kids that when they got to be 16, got a driver's license, dad gave them a brand new shiny car. They went to college. They, they didn't pay a fraternity due or sorority due. They didn't pay a tuition. They didn't have anything. Everything was given to them all through their life. Now some of them are 30 and 35 years old and still on daddy's payroll because they, they want something for nothing. It's built into their psyche. And they're out there today. Maybe they're in here. Some of you might feel like this. Maybe there's somebody here today searching for a meaningful relationship in life. Maybe some friend brought you this morning. You've never known a meaningful relationship in life. Maybe you're here today and you say, man, you, that's me. Immediate gratification. I don't want to wait for anything. I want it right now. 
maybe you want something for nothing. Maybe you think you're just entitled to it. There's a fourth characteristic. This is the strangest one of all to me. They want guilt-free living. Guilt-free living. You know, what's strange to me about this is they've been brought up in a culture educationally that's basically taught them there are no moral absolutes. So relativism is rampant in their thinking process. And yet at night, when they turn the light off and they're lying there in the darkness, they still have a conscience. And they still live with a haunting longing that some moment could be lived over that this guilt that they feel that somehow they could get rid of it. They just don't know where to do it or how to do it. But it plagues them. And there's a fifth characteristic. They're thirsty for prosperity. They just don't know if they're ever going to be able to get it. They're going to be the first couple of generations, sociologists tell us, in American history that are going to raise their kids in homes that weren't as nice as the ones in which they raised in. That's never happened till now. And they're wondering, in this economy, in this job market, how am I ever going to provide for my kids like mom and dad provided for me? How am I ever going to pay for a house? How am I ever going to get a second car? How am I ever going to educate my kids? And they're thirsty for prosperity. They just don't seem to have any hope to get it. So they're out there in here. Searching for a meaningful relationship in life, want immediate gratification, want something for nothing, want guilt-free living, and they're thirsty for prosperity. Who's going to give them the answer? You think they're going to find it in an educational system? Where do you think they're going to find it? Now, here comes the preacher talk. But it's truth. We're the only ones that had the answer. The church of Jesus Christ. It's always been that way but never more so than today. We are the only ones that have the answer to the five needs of these lost generations. And and I can prove it to you in one verse of Scripture. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, where Paul said, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. What's the first characteristic of those lost generations? They're searching for a meaningful relationship in life. Look at the first two words in Ephesians 1.7. In him. Not in religion. Not in some ritual. But in a relationship with Christ. It is in him. It doesn't say in our good works we have redemption. It doesn't say in our efforts and our human efforts and everything we do to strive for it we have redemption. It doesn't say in any of those things. It says it's in him. It's in a vital living relationship with Jesus Christ in a relationship with him that we have these things. Listen, you, you only have three relationships in life. You know, all of life, life's about relationships if you hadn't figured it out. And you only have three relationships in life. There's an outward expression. That's, that's where we connect with each other in this outward expression, in our relationships with each other, at home, in the office, at church, at school, uh, on the ball team, wherever we are in, in this social arena, where we connect with each other in these outward expressions. And we're made to do that. You remember what God, God spoke at the end of every great creative act in Genesis? He put the stars in space and he said, remember what he said? That's good. 
He made the, he, he made the vegetation life. He said, that's good. He divided the sea and land and he said, that's good. He, he made the animal life and he said, that's good. And then he made man and he said something else. He said, not good. That's what he said. It is not good for what? For man to be alone. We are made to connect with each other in these outward expressions of relationships. The very thing for which some of you in this room are searching for today, a meaningful relationship in life. So you have an outward expression, but you also have an inward expression of that relationship. That's the relationship you have with yourself. Call it what you want to, self-worth, whatever you want to call it. We, you know, we get up in the morning, we put on our makeup in the mirror, look at ourselves. We get up and shave in the morning, we look at ourselves. Some people in our culture do both in the mornings when they get up. But you, you, you get up and you, you, you have a relationship with yourself. I don't care what you call it. You, gotta, you have a relationship with yourself. And most of what goes wrong in your relationships with others is just a, what psychologists call a projection of what's happening in you. You get mad at the office or you get, somebody says something at school and you get angry and you come home, kick the, kick the door open at home, holler at your mom and dad, mad at them, breaking relationships there because you're angry inside. You see, you have a relationship with others, an outward expression. You have, a, you have an inward expression, a relationship with yourself. Now, you've got one other relationship. And before I tell you, it is an awesome thought. And those of us in the church sometimes get so close to this, we lose the awesomeness of what it is. It is what separates every one of us in this room from all the other created order. And it is this, we have the capacity to come not just in an outward relationship and an inward relationship, but we have the capacity to enter into an upward relationship with God through Jesus Christ and know him in the intimacy of father and child to come to Jesus Christ and, 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 and let him live his life in us and we come into a vital, living, vibrant relationship with him. That's what Paul says, in him. We have redemption. It is in Christ. So here's the bottom line. You're never going to be properly related to each other until what? Till you're properly related to yourself. And that is never going to happen until you come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and find your self-worth in him. That's why Paul said to the Colossians, Christ in me. Is my hope of glory. And, and, and you, find your, you find your relationship in Christ, you find that that's where you get your self-worth. It's in Christ. That's where you get this love. It's in Christ. It's in this relationship with him. That's where you feel good about yourself because you're in Christ. And then what do you do? You translate the love of Christ into the lives of others. You begin to see everybody through the eyes of Jesus. And when you do, you'll have something different to think about most people if you really look through the eyes of Jesus. So here's a group of people searching for a meaningful relationship in life. We're the only ones that have the answer. It's in him. It's in a relationship with Christ. The very thing for which they're searching for. And there will never be a really, truly meaningful relationship in life unless you begin that meaningful relationship in life with a relationship with Christ. That's the only meaningful relationship you'll have that can then be translated to others. 
What's the second characteristic? They want immediate gratification. We're the only ones who had the answer. Look at the next phrase in Ephesians 1, 7. In him, what? We have redemption. Right now. You talk about immediate gratification. It doesn't say in him we hope for redemption. It doesn't say in him we wait for redemption. It doesn't say in him we think one day we're going to get redeemed. It says in him we have redemption. If you were reading that in the language of the New Testament, the Koine Greek, it is present, active, indicative in the text. It simply means it's happening in present time, actual time, right now. We have redemption, immediate gratification. I came to know Christ as a 17-year-old young man. I'd never heard a prayer in my home. I'd never seen the Bible open in my home. I didn't know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were books of the Bible. I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas. And a young man witnessed to me after a basketball game, took me to the Sagamore Hill Baptist Church in Fort Worth the next Sunday. I heard the gospel preached for the first time. And that morning... Old things passed away in my life. And everything became new, like the Bible says. It was like, you, you say, well, I'm just not sure that I'm saved or not. Well, you know, the Bible says it's like going from death unto life. How could you go from death unto life and not know it? Some of you may be here today and say, you know, I'm not sure whether I'm trusted Christ or not. Well, you can't go from death unto life and not know it. It's, the Bible says it's like going from darkness into light when you trust Christ. How could you go from the darkness into the light and say, well, I just don't know whether I've done that or not. That morning, Christ came into my life. You talk about immediate gratification, purpose, joy, forgiveness, all of those things flooded my life. It was the most immediate gratification I ever seen. It was probably weeks or months before I ever heard the word repentance. But I know I repented that morning. You know how I know? Immediately, I started hating what I used to love and loving what I used to hate. Those places I used to like to go on Friday night, I had zero desire to ever go there again. And I didn't. Things I'd never thought I'd ever want to do, like hanging around a bunch of folks that look like you in church. I found my greatest joy in doing. It was Jesus who changed my desires, who gave me instant gratification, who came into my life and filled it with purpose and peace and, 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 and all of those things. The very thing for which they're searching. We're the only ones that have the answer. In him, we have redemption right now. With purpose. You know those people going over to Walmart across the street right now? They drive by here and they see our cars in the parking lot. If they think anything about us, you know what they think we're doing? They think we're hunkered down in the corner over here somewhere in a little huddle, wringing our hands, singing, when we all get to heaven, what a wonderful day of rejoicing it'll be there. They don't know what we're about is right now. Immediate gratification, the forgiveness of sins, Christ coming into our lives and giving us purpose and peace and the joy we sang about just a moment ago. What's the third characteristic? They want something for nothing. Look at the next phrase in Ephesians 1, 7. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood. When Jesus died on the cross, he shouted to Telestai. He shouted, it is finished. That Greek word translated means paid in full. 
Let me tell you something, friend. Jesus didn't go to the cross and shed his blood to put down a little down payment on your sins. So you had to work your way and strive and, and work hard to try to get to heaven the rest of the way. No, when he shed his blood for you, it was it, your sins were paid in full. The very thing you're looking for. You can't earn salvation. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. In him we have redemption through his blood. It's not through his power as magnificent as it was. Nor through his life as sinless and as perfect as it was. Nor through his teachings as beautiful uh, as they were. uh, Or through his love that he saves. It's through his blood. He purchased you. And he stamped paid in full on your, on your sins and life for you. And the very thing for which you're searching is something you can't buy if you tried. Because it's the free gift of God through Jesus Christ our Lord that he offers you today. Later in chapter 2, Paul will say, You who are far off have been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. Peter put it this way in his epistle. You're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your vain conversations received by tradition of your fathers, but by the precious blood of Jesus, slain as a lamb without blemish and spot. What a Savior who went to the cross to die for your sins and paid for them in full with his blood. Searching for a meaningful relationship in life, it's in him. Want immediate gratification? We have redemption. Want something for nothing? Through his blood. What's the fourth characteristic? They want guilt-free living. Look at the next phrase. The forgiveness of sins. The very thing for which they're searching. We're the only ones who have the answer. The forgiveness of sins. To be forgiven of our sins. Sin will haunt you. That's what That's what we read in Psalm 51. David said, my sin is ever before me. Guilt. You know what guilt is? You know, you you go out and do something you shouldn't and you get that guilt feeling. You know what guilt is? That's a voice of God to your heart. You remember that next time. That's nothing more than God's voice. And you know what God's voice is saying? You have sinned. That's what guilt is. I'm talking about authentic guilt now, not artificial guilt. There's some people that have had other people heap stuff on them that didn't, they didn't do, and that's artificial. But I'm talking about when you go out and you do something you shouldn't do, and you're lying there at night when, in the darkness, and you have those guilt feelings, hauling up that haunting longing that that moment could be lived over. That is the voice of God saying, you have sinned. So what is Confession. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's a compound word in Greek, homologeo. It means to say the same as. Guilt is God's voice saying you have sinned. Confession is our way of saying the same as God says. I agree with you, God, I've sinned. It's not some little vice I can just laugh off like I've been doing. It's not something I can excuse by saying, well, everybody else is doing it. It's not something I can minimize by saying, well, it's not as bad as so-and-so's. Your sin is so serious, it necessitated the cross. 
And so when guilt comes, and that's God's voice saying you have sinned, like it's come to some of your hearts right now, even as I'm speaking. As I bear witness with the Spirit of God, confession is saying, I agree with you, God. I agree. And then what happens if we confess our sin? The Bible says he forgives us. The Greek word is a theomy. It means to send away. Peter's mother-in-law's fever uh, was sent away as she was healed up at Capernaum. Same word. That scapegoat in the wilderness was sent out into the wilderness, never to be seen again. That's what God does with our sins. That's why we should never call unclean what God has cleansed. And when, and when God, when we confess our sin, he forgives us and he separates our sin from us. The very thing for which we're looking for, this guilt-free living, only Christ can provide it. And thank God, that, that's what the psalmist said. He said, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions and he remembers them no more. Aren't you glad he said east from west? If he'd have said north and south, what? There's a north pole and there's a south pole. There's an end to that. There's no end to the east and west. I don't care who you are, what you've done, where you've done it, or who you've done it with. This morning, God can make it as if it never happened. He can cleanse you of your sin. The very thing for which you're searching. And one final brief word. They're thirsty for prosperity. They just don't know where they're ever going to obtain it. Look at the last phrase. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of what? His grace. His grace. You know, there are over a dozen prepositions in Greek in which this New Testament was written. Proverbs says, every word of God is pure. There's a reason for every word being here. And I'm so glad that this preposition, according to, is here, and not the most common used one, ek, which means out of. It's not out of the riches of his grace. If I, took, if I went to Kevin after the service, say, man, I appreciate you letting me preach here today, and I whoop out my money clip and hand him five or ten bucks in appreciation, I would have given him out of my riches. But in my wallet, I've got a blank check. If I took it out, and I told the first guy, don't get your hopes up because I'm not going to do it. But if I took that check out and I just signed O.S. Hawkins at the bottom of it and gave it to him, said, you fill in whatever you need. Then I would have been giving him not out of, but according to my riches. Listen to what this says about you and Jesus. It says that forgiveness of sin is given to you according to the riches of his grace. His grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And God is rich in grace. That's why Paul said in the Corinthian letter, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How that he who was rich for your sake became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. The grace of God extends to you today. That's, you know, the difference in grace and mercy. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Thank God he gives us what we don't deserve, eternal life. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And God extends them both to anybody and everybody today who will receive them. There's a lost world out there and in here searching for a meaningful relationship in life, looking for immediate gratification, 
wanting something for nothing, searching for guilt-free living, and thirsty for prosperity. And they're never going to find it until they find it in Christ alone, who said, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. So what am I saying in closing to some of you in this room today? who need forgiveness, who are looking for a meaningful relationship. Here's what I'm saying. The something you think you need, the something for which you've been searching for for so long, the something you think you need is really someone, not something. And his sweet name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sins he'll wash away, your night he'll turn to day, your life he'll make it over anew. 